Welcome to The Shalene Show. Shalene is a New York Times bestselling author, celebrity fitness trainer, and obsessed with helping you live your dream life. Today, you'll hear from Dr. Bert Herring. Dr. Herring is a graduate of Southwestern University and Texas A&M College of Medicine. After medical school, he served as a medical officer in the U.S. Navy assigned to the Marine Corps. Following his service, Dr. Herring joined the Public Health Service as a researcher in the metabolism branch in the metabolism branch of the National Cancer Institute, which is part of the National Institute for Health. A TEDx speaker in 2005, Dr. Burt showed the world a way to maintain practical, sustainable weight management with intermittent fasting. With his first book, The Fast Five Diet and The Fast Five Lifestyle, his latest work in research can be found in AC, The Power of Appetite Correction. Dr. Burt has a diverse range of experience, from the no-nonsense world of the U.S. Marine Infantry to his cutting-edge cancer research at the National Institute of Health. Dr. Burt maintains a strong sense of practicality. His approach to wellness and weight management centers around the study of one which we'll discuss in this interview. Today, Dr. Herring shares with us his Fast 5 Protocol, a shortened window of intermittent fasting. To learn more about Dr. Burt, go to com. Check out his free downloads. Be sure to watch his TEDx talk. And without further ado, Dr. Burt Herring, MD. Well, it is a pleasure to have you here today, and um, I'm bubbling over with excitement because, well, mainly because of your approach. It just is so realistic. It's so common sense, which seems remarkably uncommon these days. Uh, Dr. Burt, what is meant by a term you use, the study of one as it pertains to diet? Thanks for having me on your show. It's a pleasure to talk with you and with your audience. The The study of one means that you're looking at yourself, that you're the only one in the study, and so you're both the observer and the participant in the study. And that's not really a, a scientific way to go about things. But the reason that I find it terribly important is that everybody is unique. And though we're all human and we all share 99% plus of our DNA, we have changes over our lifetimes, and even siblings who share their parents' DNA are different from each other. And when we add that to having a different lifestyle, a different environment that we're living in, everybody winds up with a totally different deck of cards to work with in terms of handling problems that come up in their bodies. And the other side of it is that a lot of people approach weight loss as if their body is where the problem is. And I don't see it that way. I see that our culture is where the problem is. Because if you take any one of these bodies outside of the culture and either turn the clock back 100 years or put them in an environment where there's more activity, food is harder to come by, then all of a sudden the weight starts to drop off. And so I like for people to start from the point that of knowing that their body is good stuff and it is doing what it's built to do. It's just terribly confused by the kind of environment that it's currently existing in. By making changes outside of the body, we can avoid having to make changes inside the body with either drugs or surgery. How is it, though, we are so scared almost? I mean, I, I find with 
many of the people I work with, they don't want to trust themselves. They want the rules of someone else's diet. They want a definitive answer so that they can say, this is bad and this is good and I can memorize this and I'll be okay. We do- Why is it we are so reluctant to trust ourselves or to assume that we might be an exception, even though someone says everyone should be eating boatloads of kale? Well, I, I think that that comes from growing up in an environment where there's an expert for everything. Everybody's got their subspecialty on TV. We're always seeing an expert on this or an expert on that. It doesn't have to be related to healthcare. When it comes down to the study of one, you're the expert in your own body. And the environment that somebody is living in is like that. It's complex, but they know where things are. They know what they can change. They know what they can't change. If we put those together, that kind of expertise of knowing where you really are with a little bit of confidence in being able to make a change in the context of the study of one, which means you make a change, you look at it, you, you see for yourself whether or not it did any good for you. Mm-hmm. And if it did some good, then you keep it up or you do more of it. And if it didn't do you any good, then you throw it out. And one of the keys that I have found over the years that I've been working with people in weight loss is that they have to have proper expectations in in order to know when something is working. And often people will be on a diet for one day, I kid you not. (laughs) I know. One day, and they will expect to see results. Yes. And it takes a little bit of acceptance and faith for them to put that aside and say, wait three weeks, give it three weeks. Give every change that you make three weeks. It takes your body that long to incorporate the change and show you what it can do with it. Three weeks. That's generally the, the case. Yeah. What I recommend, which is the, the Fast Five Intermittent Fasting Program, which just means setting a, a five-hour five hour block of time during the day that's the eating window and fasting the rest of the time. It, it makes a very simple rule. And as you said, people do like to have simpler rules. Yes. And it makes a simple rule, but you won't really know how well it's working for you until you give your body three weeks to work with it. Mm -hmm. And through that time, some pretty amazing adaptations happen. The the body can uh, be challenged. And when it's challenged, it can rise to the occasion. And it's very much like going into a gym. You don't expect to be able to bench press 100 pounds more than you did the day before. (laughs) You expect it to take time, right? Right. Well, the same kind of changes have to happen in order for you to adapt to fasting. It takes time. And so you don't go into the gym and expect to bench press 100 pounds more daily. You expect to work at it. And so by extending one's schedule a little bit each day, you can work at it. Mm -hmm. And the key is just to give your body that chance. Don't give up before that three-week mark. And most people are smooth sailing by the time they've given it three weeks. And they, they see the things that change, like the, the appetite correction. Yes. And that, instead of starting a, a vicious cycle of weight gain, it starts the virtuous cycle of encouragement, of confidence, of trust, believing in one's body, and, and believing in one's body that it's a good thing, that it's a good set of equipment that you're working with. Once they start to get that feeling 
And as you mentioned, feeling good is a part of it. Once that starts, then they can say, wow, I really can change something. Mm. And off they go. That's so powerful. Well, let's break this down a little further. I love that you've so succinctly described it as a shortened window where you're eating your calories in this continuous hour five-hour block of time, and the remaining mm-hmm. time, uh, you you are fasting, not eating, allowing your system to rest. And I, I know that's a simplified explanation, and obviously, there's so much more to it. No, there's really not any more to it. That is as simple <laughs> as, it, as it is. And one of the reasons that I, uh, back in 2005, I, I had stumbled across this a, a few years previously, but published it in 2005, mm-hmm. just because this one little five-word sentence of eat within five consecutive hours was the only rule that people needed to hang Mm. on to for what could be a life-changing appetite correction to where they started losing weight without having to to try because their appetite system had gotten back in gear and was telling them, you've had enough. Mm. And they didn't have to count calories. They didn't have to uh, omit specific foods. They could still eat what they wanted. They could still eat as much as they wanted, which is a big key. Mm-hmm. They didn't have to white knuckle it. And then this um, amazing change happens. But it's, it's not so amazing when you look at nature and you, you see all the animals out in the world, in the wild. None of them are overweight. And we have the same appetite system built into our brains that they do. So what's the difference? Um, commercialism? <laughs> yeah. Yes. And that goes back to what I said at the beginning. Body is good. It's the outside culture that we have to protect mm. the body. That's what the schedule does. It just sort of shields the body for 19 hours a day of the, the cultural uh, emphasis on eating all the time and eating too much. Besides that, it gets the, the appetite center working again. And between those two things, it's uh, like switching on an autopilot that just things work. That, that is the rule. Eat within five consecutive hours. That's it. Let me ask the question that... I think many would ask, if it's just within those five hours, do I need to pay attention to what I'm eating? I think that's common sense. But does that shortened window sometimes give people um, that feeling like, well, I should really indulge myself now because I've gone 19 hours? And, And how important are the nutrients we put in after fasting for 19 hours? As far as what to break the fast with, it's important, but it's probably not as most as important as most people think because Mm. adults are no longer growing as long as they're not pregnant and they only have to replace a little bit of protein. The body is very, very good at recycling protein and most of the time it doesn't even have to recycle any, but it can. And when it needs to, it will do a lot of it. Aside from that little bit of protein and some minerals, the only thing that people need is, is fuel. Mm-hmm. And fuel comes in the form of either fat or carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. And the human body is like a flex fuel engine. It can run on either one. It can also run on protein when it has to. But it will choose to run on either fat or carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. And so I suggest you know, balance of those that is within one's personal appetite preference. Mm. I, I do uh, try to shy away from refined sugars because those can overwhelm the appetite center's ability to measure how many calories have come in. Mm. It, it basically comes in too fast for the kind of sensors that we have, just like shining a light that's too bright or sounds that are too loud to, to hear well. They can overwhelm the sensor and not be measured properly. But when they're coming in gradually, the body can do a good job of measuring 
the number of calories. And so you can have a very wide latitude with what you choose to eat. And again, people are different. And so not everybody can have the same amount of liberty. But that's part of the study of one is that you find out what you can get away with and what you can't. (laughs) And then you can, can live your life as with as much freedom as possible. Well, speaking of freedom, let's talk about freedom from um, hunger and how your protocol helps with appetite suppression or appetite control. That, that's a good point because a lot of people don't realize that there is an appetite center in their brains that is designed or built or exists just to keep them at an appropriate weight. And if you look, like I mentioned earlier, at the animals all around us, the only obese animals around are the ones that are human fed. And so, again, they're in a different culture, a human created culture. But as long as we give our bodies a chance to self regulate, they can do a very good job of doing the calorie counting without any uh, tables or having to look up anything or measure any kind of portions. Just eat and the body takes care of it. And so, with that in mind, the longer interval between eating that is a part of the the fast five diet with a five hour eating window, the appetite center kicks in to where it's stronger, it's more emphatic. And most people are not even familiar with the feeling of being too full. But in some people, it's even so strong that if they overeat, if they eat past what their body actually needs, and that can turn out to be a very small meal, they can sort of feel sick about it. And they can very quickly learn what the right portion is and they eat only that. And again, they're not having to measure. They're not having to hold back. They're eating as much as they want. It's just that that want has suddenly come in line with what their body's need is. And if they have excess fat, that excess fat is fuel that they can burn. And so the amount that they have to eat each day can really be surprisingly low. Now, is this something you attribute to a regulation of the hunger hormones? ghrelin and leptin. How do you attribute this appetite suppressing effect of fasting? The hunger hormones that you mentioned, ghrelin and leptin, they exist and they're real, but we don't know enough about them yet to say exactly what does what in terms of either starting fasting or doing any kind of other intervention. Mm. We have not been able, able to successfully use those two hormones or the receptors in any way that really benefits people. We see what the results of missing the genes are and that kind of stuff, but we don't have the big picture put together well enough yet. There are several other hormones that are involved in hunger besides those two. Mm -hmm. And until we learn a lot more about them, it's not put to the point where we can just say, oh, this does this and this does that, and it's like a key in a lock, and that's all there is to it. Mm. We're not there yet. The, the body is an incredibly complicated system. Well, then let's address where hunger feels like an emergency, or it's, you feel this desperation to eat. If you really strip it away, hunger isn't there, but yet you're desperate to eat because there's an emotional trigger or an emotional connection to food. How mm-hmm. does fasting help to satiate that drive to eat, that emotional connection to food? Well, I would say that that drive that you mentioned, it is actually the appetite center in the Mm. brain Mm -hmm. driving you to eat food. And it's doing so because it's confused. It thinks that it needs more food because it's not getting the right signals. 
and 19 hours isn't really that long. It's just longer than most people are used to mm-hmm. because eight of that hour, of that eight hours of that interval is spent sleeping. And so it's really just a, a little bit longer and it's eating every day. So it's still a really reliable schedule. But that fasting interval leaves the insulin level down longer than it's than it usually is with a three meal a day diet. And what the domino effects of that are is just that the appetite center gets the room to work again. And again, there's suddenly, recently in the last couple of years, a whole lot of research going on into fasting. Mm-hmm. And the details that you're asking about may be unraveling in the very near future. Mm. But as far as why it works, I can't tell you stepwise, this does this and this does that. Mm-hmm. And then poof, magic happens. I really don't have the explanation for that step of magic happens. That doesn't keep us from using it, though. Since 2005, we've seen thousands of thousands of people take on the schedule and see that appetite correction happen. And once it does, they're surprised. But we're not surprised. I'm not surprised anymore because some wonderful stuff can happen when that body is working like it should. So those individuals who say that they're really closely following the protocol and they're still telling you, I'm just ravenous, I'm so hungry, I'm dying uh, while I'm getting through those 19 hours, how much of an emotional connection to food do you attribute that to? And, and, and do you think there are some who really are feeling true hunger pains? I believe that they are feeling hunger. And it doesn't really matter whether it's that emotional drive kind of hunger or mm. the, the kind of uh, feeling in the stomach kind of hunger. Mm-hmm. Because either one, as long as it's making them eat, then I'm going to hold the appetite center responsible. I see. And so it doesn't really matter how they're feeling it, as long as it's motivating them to eat when they don't need to. Mm-hmm. Anybody that has surplus fat that is feeling that is, is in that kind of contradiction. They are eating when they've got extra fuel already on their bodies. Let's just hold off for a second because that's a pretty powerful statement. Anyone who is is either telling themselves, I, I need to eat, I'm starving, I'm hungry, it's factually, it's not true. You might be, your appetite may still be there from the appetite center, mm-hmm. but there's you're not starving. Right, and habit is a very strong part of this. Mm-hmm. But you're, you're right, if, if somebody, somebody is fat, they are not, by definition, starving. Mm-hmm. And they, they do not need additional food or fuel at that point. If they were con- to continue on some course that had a lower calorie intake than required, eventually they might get to the point that they are truly starving. But as long as they've got excess fuel, that's not the case. What tips do you have for someone who's transitioning onto this lifestyle and it really sounds appealing to them? What tips do you have to help them transition or do you say start tomorrow? Well, some people do start cold turkey. They just pick their five-hour window and go for it. Mm -hmm. But there's also nothing wrong with just delaying the first meal of the day from the usual schedule, which we typically call breakfast. But because we're shifting it back usually into the afternoon, in the, in the fast five jargon, we call it break fast. We're breaking mm-hmm. the fast. Mm-hmm. And so to, to separate that from the morning meal we call breakfast, we just call it break fast. Mm-hmm. And so if you shift your break fast later and later each day, you can gradually adapt to get your eating window where you want it to be. And the one that I work with as an example in the book is from 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. And the main reason for that is that the evening tends to be the most social 
time. Mm -hmm. And it gives people the most liberty to eat when they're around other people. But the window can be any time of day, whatever works. Eastern culture, morning meal tends to be more social. And so it's more tends to be in the earlier in the day, but you can set it what you want. And the, the five hours is a good place to start. But some people have to trim it in a, a bit. Some people can loosen it up a bit. Mm-hmm. But the, the five hour window seems to be the happy medium of just what really works for people. And the other hint that, that I would offer, trust your body to be a very re- resilient machine. Mm-hmm. And don't expect it to, to work the first day. Mm. As we talked about earlier, it doesn't work the first day. And in the first week, you can have what is called compensatory overeating. And that means that because you know you're going to be fasting for most of the day, the next day, you tend to overeat mm. your your present meal when you have the opportunity to eat. And it takes a, a little while, a few days at least, sometimes a couple of weeks, to build up the trust in your body that you need to know that the fuel that you're going to need is already on your body and it's gonna, your body can tap into that and pull all the energy it needs from that. And most people think like the, the Snickers commercials where they go for without food for a little <laughs> while and they they get irritable and uh, and stupid <laughs> and stupid or whatever the advertisers are trying to convey when people initially go without food for a while that that can be an issue but it usually only happens for a few hours or even a few days at most and then you're, you're doing the the uh, equivalent of the gym exercise you're pushing your body each day you're pushing a little more and what happens it adapts it builds the enzymes that it needs to to burn fat and all of a sudden all this fuel that's stored on the on the body in case in some cases it's more fuel than body so and it's not unusual for somebody to have 60 pounds of fat which is fuel stored on their body so all of all of a sudden their body can tap into this huge fuel tank so instead of feeling irritable and uncomfortable during the day, they're just zooming through the day feeling more energy than they did before, and they're not feeling the ups and downs that come with, with eating frequently. I know that people listening to this, if they've never experienced it, they say, well, that can't be. Well, until you've tried it, <laughs> you won't believe it. But if once you feel it and you feel that energy coming on, then you might say, wow, this is what they mean by that. Yes. First, I want to mention the the struggle that I personally have with the concept around breakfast because, you know, intuitively, I've never been a breakfast eater. I eat that Mm -hmm. the foods we associate with breakfast, but I've always had them later in the day. I love having breakfast foods for quote unquote dinner. The common teaching, if you will, that's been perpetuated by expert after expert or quote unquote expert, we should say, is that you've got to eat breakfast. Breakfast is the most important meal um, that if you want to lose and studies that show people who eat breakfast tend to have better weight loss maintenance. So what are your thoughts on that common belief that we have to eat breakfast in order to maintain our weight. We have to eat breakfast if we want to have appetite suppressing hormones working throughout the day. If you skip breakfast, you're going to be ravenous and overeat and your body will store fat. Mm -hmm. The the short answer is is follow the money. (laughs) But the more thoughtful answer is that this was one of the biggest shocks that came that came my way when I started doing research. I, I stumbled across the five-hour window 
sort of by accident back when I was working at the National Institutes of Health. I was just trying to get more work done and started skipping lunch. And then a couple of days I get breakfast and realize, wow, I'm not even hungry. Usually when I would eat breakfast, I'd be hungry midday. I wasn't experienced that. So I was doing my own little study of one at the time and started seeing how this window thing worked. And it worked for me, but I thought it was just my mm-hmm. little quirk. And then as the obesity problem continued to grow, I thought, well, I should look into this and see if this could work for other people. And I looked into it, and one of the big shockers was just what you mentioned. There is no scientific basis Mm. for breakfast being an important meal at all. That is 100% pure marketing Mm. genius. It has sold more breakfast cereal and more breakfast food than anything else that's come along in in the television era. When you look at those studies that, that say things like, Oh, well, this group had better weight maintenance when they were eating breakfast. Well, if you look at some of those studies very carefully, you see that they have found one age group out of many that happened to have that Mm. characteristic. And because there's money behind it, the food companies will say, oh, let's take that little tidbit where it happened for girls 14 to 16 happened to uh, have a lower weight when they did eat breakfast than when they didn't. But let's ignore all the other kids of all the other ages, all the boys, all the girls of different ages, and just put this news out that for this, we found this to be true. They're looking at the sampling that supports the the outcome that they are hoping for. Right. The, the nickname for it is cherry picking the data. They'll they'll take take one little sample where something happens to be true and push that out in press mm. releases lots of money behind it, and the public only sees what the food companies want them to see, and they don't see all of the data that's being held back. Like playing basketball makes you tall. (laughs) That that would be the the sampling error, yeah. And I, I need to pick up a basketball then if that were to be the case. It's reassuring to hear you say this, and I, I think messaging is so profound from, from industry and marketing and, uh, food companies, you know, you're just inundated mm-hmm. with it. It's every commercial. It's it's in every book. And, and right. the, I have to fault myself because so much of when I first kind of found myself in this position of being a, a quote unquote fitness expert, which really I just developed a workout that I thought was fun and maybe other people would think it was fun too. But people are constantly asking me mm-hmm. for nutritional advice, even though my degree is in justice, morality, and constitutional democracy. What do I know about nutrition? Well, what I knew about nutrition is what I would hear and read on blogs. Didn't look at research, didn't look at science. I just looked at the overwhelming predominant message that seemed to be centered around health. And I just think we have to recognize that when we when we know better, we should do better. And it's how much we know and how how fascinated we all should be with our, our own genetics, our own DNA and our own body. It's a, it's a pretty fascinating integrated system that we don't have to just accept what someone tells us as fact, especially when it doesn't seem true for us. Absolutely. And you did your, your study of one. You found something that mm-hmm. worked for you. And it'd be nice if that one recipe would work for mm-hmm. everybody else, but it's not going to. As you said, everybody is a little bit different and one size doesn't fit all. In, encouraging people to have the confidence in the study of one means trusting themselves a little bit more, and sometimes a lot more. And that was one of the surprising findings that I found, that I experienced in when I started to talk to people about 
the uh, the Fast Five book back in 2005, I was really kind of surprised that people wouldn't just go mm-hmm. out and do this because I, I was a, I was an experimenter, a researcher. It didn't seem like it was any big thing to just try something for a little, little while. But you are absolutely correct. People are reluctant to go out on their own and build their own program. But that is exactly what most people mm. will have to do to find a recipe that oh. really fits their their body, their lifestyle, their environment, their choice of diet. And by diet, I mean whatever foods they eat, not that they're on any particular dietary restriction. And so to get everything right really takes an individual look at, at oneself to get that kind of fit that, that I'm enjoying with with my study of one and you're enjoying with your <laughs> study of one. Well, you are speaking my language. Having said that, though, um, why five hours? Why not four hours? And if, if five eating within or, or fasting for 19 hours is good, well, then wouldn't fasting for, say, 22 hours be better? It's a a good question. And what it goes back to is what actually Mm. works for people. And as I mentioned before, this worked for me. And then I shared it. I didn't just go research something and try to say, well, this ought to work for somebody or maybe this will work for somebody. No, it started from at the point that it was working. What I encouraged other people to try was what had worked for me. And a four hour window being shorter than five, that'll probably work for most people. But if five hours work, why why limit your mm-hmm. freedom when you when you don't have to? Is there something magical, or is there something important that happens at a certain number of hours? In other words, if I find that the five hour window doesn't work for me, are there benefits that happen at say the twelve hour mark or the fifteen hour mark that we should be aware of? There's not a specific change, but around eighteen hours is when most of the insulin level has has dropped as far as it's going to. If you extend the fast out past mm-hmm. 19 hours into 24 or 48 hours, it still drops. But most of the drop has happened after 18 hours. And so 19 hours gives you a little bit of, of leeway. That if you slip a little bit or want to have a little adjustment, if you aim for 19 hours, you're going to get 18 almost all the time. And 18 mm-hmm. seems to be mm-hmm. a crucial threshold. Some people do better with 12. And if they do better with 12, that's great. Then power on. But mm-hmm. most people that mm-hmm. we've seen have had success with a five-hour window. And so if it's working for people, we're not going to recommend they change. And a lot of people have come back to us and mm-hmm. say, oh, well, I started letting my, my window slide open. The window became a door. The door became a garage door. And then the weight started coming back. And people can find for themselves where exactly that threshold is. But what we found is that five hour, a five-hour window is easily tolerated. It's quite comfortable socially, and it gives you enough time to go out in the evening. You don't have to be rushing to get your food in, uh, so you can take your time. Mm -hmm. And that's actually one of the advantages of a five-hour window versus a shorter one, is that you eat your fill at your breakfast time, and then you know you've got several hours more ahead of you that if you want to eat, you still can. So you don't feel the pressure like you have to eat everything all at once. A lot of people do shift into a one meal a day plan, and, and that works for them, and that's great, um, but it's not required. And so the, the five-hour window gives that sort of happy medium of freedom versus effectiveness that has made it work for 90-plus percent of the people who pick it up and try it. I'm not expecting you to have these numbers or statistics in front of you, 
but do you happen to have some results that you can share with us that people have experienced doing the fast five? The, we have results of a survey that over 300 people responded to, and there have been several people who've lost over 100 pounds. Some people were responding to the survey after only a month, and in a month's time, three weeks of mm. that, we're expecting no weight loss at all. That's just the adaptation time. So to see weight loss after a mm-hmm. month, that's pretty good. That's pretty powerful for people to remember that there's a three-week adaptation point. So if we approach weight loss as something that's supposed to happen overnight, that's the biggest mistake we can start with, is that we have to give our bodies the ability to to reset, if you will, so that weight loss can occur. Right. And the the key that's different in the the Fast Five program and the later book that I wrote to fill in some places that Fast Five didn't cover is called AC, the power of appetite correction. And the appetite correction effect is the fundamental shift that people should be aiming for, in my opinion. Appetite correction is that Mm -hmm. point that the body is working like it should, and they don't have to withhold food from themselves. They don't have to fight anymore. Their body is taking care of them. Probably, for, for some people, it's the first time in their lives that they see this happening. Their body is telling them, that they've had enough and they can move on and not continue to consume food. They'll leave food on their plate for the first time in their lives and think, Mm. wow, this is really amazing. And it is amazing. It is a beautiful (laughs) thing to see the human body working the way that it can. And people call it magic. It's not magic. It's the human body being the wonderful thing that it is. There are some social stigma that people can expect when you're discussing what it is you're doing. I tend to suggest that people talk about diet as they do talk about politics. You're going to get so many other people's opinion. You'll never convince them. It's kind of futile to argue with someone because it's it's your body and everyone has their own opinions, which are constantly mm-hmm. changing. Um, so how do you recommend when someone's been invited out to lunch and instead of eating lunch, they've decided to continue their fast. How do they explain that without feeling all eyes on them and having everyone accuse them of having an eating disorder or doing something that's foolish or based in fad? Well, one of the options you already mentioned, that's just to to not talk about it. And obviously, that's difficult when Mm -hmm. somebody's asking you directly at the the table about it. And in that case, what we suggest Mm -hmm. is that uh, fasting doesn't exclude drinking something that doesn't have calories in it. So, Tea and coffee are both eligible, and you can sit at the table, and as long as you're putting something in your mouth, water, a straw, coffee, whatever, people usually don't pay much attention to it. But even if they do, Mm -hmm. you can truthfully say, I ate earlier, or I'm going to eat later, and I'm just not hungry now, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we're not supposed to eat when we're not hungry. We do it all the time, but when you put it into words, I'm not hungry, Mm. somebody would have to say, well, then you've got to eat anyway. And that's, that puts the, the person in a situation where it's a pretty, pretty easy defense. <laughs> I'm not hungry, so I'm not going to eat right now. And, but, but usually the yeah. go-to is either I ate earlier or I'm going to eat later, not hungry right now. And there are some people who are very uh, belligerent about people eating all the time. Usually it is so that they can have license to eat. And so if, if they get licensed yes. to eat and you say, go ahead, I don't, I don't mind if you eat from me, do it all the time. 
I've done that myself where there's, there's one person at the table who's not eating. You're like, come mm-hmm. on, eat. Cause you, you want, it's like the, the, the buddy who's the big drinker. Like, come on, let's have a beer. Let's throw one back. Cause you, you want company. It's not that you're so worried about their intake. You're more concerned with feeling okay about your own. Right. And that's when we go back to culture. It's, we've come full circle. That culture of expecting people to eat at a given time is part of the problem. And as more people break away from that, it gets easier for everybody to eat on their own schedule and to according to their own need, which is where we need to be as a culture. And so back in 2005, the amount of belligerence that came out of people who were uh, in situations like this, it's a lot more than it is now because people, the celebrities have come out like Hugh Jackman says, oh, I only eat once a day. It's a bit more acceptable now to... Uh, to do that. And so the, the amount of pushback has already changed over the last 12 years uh, that, that people encounter when they take this on. And so it's a little bit easier now than it used to be. And I'm glad about that. And as more fasting research comes out that supports the amazing things that, that fasting can do for people. Yes. It is becoming more and more well known that the, that fasting rather than being a bad thing is actually a good thing for the body that sort of challenge it's sort of like lifting weights it's like saying that you've gone you're, that you're exercising it's a good thing that you're doing for your body that recognition will continue to spread and hopefully they'll become the day in our culture where people sit down and they talk and they social stuff and it's just completely irrelevant who's eating and who's not isn't that the truth i have an obligation to balance emotional health and physical health um, when speaking to my audience. So there's the term disordered eating, right? Which mm-hmm. if you think about even the term disordered eating, who, who's decided what is orderly and how has that been dictated to us? And therefore, how do we define disordered eating? And I guess more importantly, my concern is those individuals who don't have an off switch with anything. So if if fasting for 19 hours is good, well, then fasting for 24 hours must be better. And mm-hmm. suddenly they've slipped into anorexia. And um, so how, how do you help those understand the difference between restricting and pick up for themselves any cues that they might be slipping into a more dangerous area or a more, quote unquote, disordered form of eating? Well, I, I think that there are actually two different animals. There's maybe the, the fasting enthusiast, and then there's the person with an eating disorder. And mm-hmm. there, there may be some overlap in there, but I think in general we're talking about two different things because the, the fasting enthusiast is typically setting a goal of improving their body, being more healthy. And if they see cues that are suggesting that they're doing otherwise, like they're losing muscle mass, then that enthusiast is going to say, well, primarily, I'm primarily doing this for health, and this isn't healthy, so I have to back off. And so mm. there's not the natural progression. I don't see the natural pro- progression from one into the eating disorder that, that you do. Now, the eating disorders are clearly out there. I mentioned this in the, in the book, by the way. If somebody is telling you that it looks like you're doing uh, harm to your body, then I do ask mm-hmm. for people to listen because an outside observer may may see some things that really do concern them. If that if all that mm-hmm. amounts to is weight loss and they're still above a goal weight that they have set previously that, that is appropriate for their build, then just losing weight doesn't doesn't count as a disorder. But if they go beyond mm-hmm. that, and I, I I suspect that this can can happen. There are 
7 billion people in the world. This certainly can't happen to mm-hmm. some of them. Uh, they could slip into that world of disorder. And I just have to ask them to trust other people around them, trust their physicians to say when they've gone too far and, and listen when that's the case. Would you agree that it is also important to take a look at how much, you know, a particular style of eating, let's say even um, the fast five diet, that protocol, if it becomes so overwhelming in your life that there's so much control focused around it that you feel panicked and anxiety because um, people want to eat at 4 p.m., and you just can't allow yourself that flexibility, that that's a pretty good sign that it's become more than health now that it's it's affecting all areas of your life. It's affecting the way you think, the, the way you socialize, and you're not giving yourself grace. Would you agree that that's also a pretty good sign that there's something more at issue? Yes. If, if it starts to interfere with relationships, then again, it doesn't matter whether it's an eating disorder or a extreme fasting habit. It can be anything. It can be somebody who's an ultra marathoner who just runs so much they have broken off all their social connections. It can be an alcoholic who's drinking so much alcohol that their relationships are breaking down. When you get to that point where stuff starts to fall apart, you have gone too far. And so no matter what it is in your life that you're right. that you're dealing with, that is certainly a, a strong indicator. Now, one of the things that is interesting about Fast Five and eating disorders so, as I mentioned, that one of the reasons that the eating disorders develop is the lack of control. That people, they find some pathologic mechanism to control their weight, and so they do that. One of the nice things is that when people find something that gives them the control they need, everything is stable, I don't have to worry. I know that my, my weight is maintaining where it ought to be. I don't have to do the, the counting. I don't have that fear. And without the fear... Mm comes confidence and i think so i think there's a a balance that this sense of control and the freedom that comes with actually finding something that works has the potential to be much more positive than the the negative side so i want people to go into everything that they do open open open-minded and open-eyed to be aware of what can happen when when it's taken to extremes but there is a Mm. enormous potential for good that i don't want people people to miss out on either that's great I guess this also leads to my next question, which is, can you elaborate on the difference between extreme restricting and true fasting in those 19 hours? In those 19 hours, in the way that I encourage fasting, people are are drinking beverages ad lib, so they're not going to be dehydrated. Uh, Mm -hmm. And those beverages are anything that has either zero or negligible uh, calories. And my favorite is, is water. So that's... That's as restrictive as that is. <laughs> when you say we're just consuming liquids without calories, um, and I, I'm on my 19-hour fast, and I grab, oh, it's nothing that fuels me, but it's it's just a handful of um, gummy bears, or it's you know a few almonds, or it's just a couple of bites of food. What's happening? Am I breaking the fast, and what's happening in the body? Because I'm still starving. I don't feel like I fueled myself, but yet quote-unquote starving, I should say. Um, But tell us why it's important and what types of nutrients break the fast. Any bolus of, and bolus just means a a portion, like a mouthful of something, Mm -hmm. can break the fast. And the reason that that is is because the brain is a digestive organ. And if the brain knows that it's eating something, 
which means all the time that you're eating something, it doesn't matter what it is, then it says, oh, food's available. And if food is available, mm -hmm. then it's going to say, okay, we need to eat at least this much. And so it, the brain itself can make it very challenging to stop once you've started. So when somebody grabs a, a handful of nuts or like it's any kind of snack, their brain is, is being told, oh, well, food is available. And so it shifts gears to say, it's time to eat a full meal. And so once somebody breaks the fast, it can be very, very difficult to limit that to just a small portion. That certainly sounds like a cognitive advantage. Is there a cellular advantage or a um, the way our body is breaking down uh, fuel sources for energy? I grab my handful of almonds. Mm -hmm. And from a cognitive standpoint, I don't need to break my fast beyond that. Mm -hmm. Oops, I slipped. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, and I'm able to get myself back on track and continue my fast. What is happening to me on a cellular level on a, in my gut, in other words, will that shift the way that my body is using fuel for energy? Will it break the fast in terms of ketosis and those sorts of things on a cellular level? It, it actually depends on what, what the snack contains. And you mentioned nuts, which don't have a lot of carbohydrate in them. And so that would mm -hmm. be a very different handful than a handful of gummy bears. The gummy, mm -hmm. the gummy bears would be all sugar. Your insulin would go up, and that would signal your your cells that it's time to store fuel rather than burn it. So they would switch gears into fat storage mode, and there wouldn't be much much sugar around to store. So you might actually have a drop in your blood sugar after that little insulin surge, and that might not not feel very good. But if we go back to the almonds, it might not actually change much. And in that respect, a, a ketogenic diet that puts somebody in ketosis is very similar to fasting. And they appear to mm -hmm. have a similar effect on the appetite center. The human body is able, it's better able to uh, get its appetite correct through a ketogenic diet than it is mm -hmm. one that's a carbohydrate-containing diet. Would you agree then if someone is interested in adopting the FAST-5 protocol that in order to transition into it, they may find eating ketogenically for a period of time, maybe even that three-week period or two-week period, that that might make that transition easier? People who have been on a ketogenic diet can usually adapt to fasting more easily than those who don't because their fat cells machinery is already geared up to, to provide fat as fuel. And so I know that it's typically easier that way uh, in how mm -hmm. people feel when they take this on. Some people do the window the first day, never look back, never feel a thing. And others have to kind of grind it out for a couple of weeks before their cells start to kick in. So for for any individual person, I'd really be reluctant to try to predict exactly what they're gonna, mm. going to feel when they do that. That's great to know. Let me ask a, a question from my audience mm -hmm. about fasting and exercise. Uh, so this person asks, I take BCAAs if I train during my fast, and I do this to minimize um, any muscle loss since I'm an athlete. I'm lean, I'm active, and I'm insulin sensitive. So does that mean shortly after my workout, and I'm no longer drinking my BCAAs, will growth hormone production, autophagy, and fat burning quickly resume? This is going up pretty far into some hypothesis simply because we don't have the answers. Because fasting mm. has very scarcely been studied 
we really don't know on what its very various implications are in different circumstances. And what little is known comes from some fairly old studies where all the tests weren't available that we have available now. Now, I will say that, that uh, perceived necessity of, immediate, of eating after exercise to avoid muscle damage is overstated. There, there is mm-hmm. evidence in studies that says that muscle buildup is greater with food coming immediately after a workout. But the amount of difference that that makes over several weeks' time is really so small that you'd have to be using some very delicate measurements in order to test it. So my position is that you exercise when it's convenient for you and when it works for you, and you eat when it's convenient and it works for you. And that little fraction of a percent of difference in muscle mass is not going to be something that, that you notice or anybody else notice. What it will be noticed is if you don't work out, you don't get your activity in because it doesn't happen to fit with your eating schedule. So working around that schedule just to get things to work together, you may compromise more muscle mass than you would just in going in and doing it whenever you can. So activity first and get the the eating schedule that you like. Give those a try. And if they're working for you, I, I wouldn't worry about all the details. I wouldn't worry about BCAAs and that sort of thing. See how it goes for you and then adjust from there. You don't suspect that there is any type of muscle catabolism happening when we're exercising in a fasted state? No, no. The human body's smarter than that. It's not going to start tearing at its muscle when it's got fat around. And everybody's got got some fat around, even if they're down to 2 to 3% body fat. They've still got fat. And they're going to be burning glycogen first. And so unless they're, mm-hmm. if they're adapted to their exercise, which is a big, a big deal. What do you mean by that? Adapted to their exercise? Meaning that they do this kind of exercise routinely. And so as people gradually take on more exercise, their bodies adapt to it and store and supply the energy that's needed for that kind of exercise. So that, that protects the muscle from that demand because the body is ready to supply it. And so you don't see, um, you're not going to see muscle deterioration just as a result of exercise. Exactly the, the contrary, muscle builds up after exercise. The, the fasting impact on that, I think, is way overblown thanks to misinterpretation mm. of a study that was done several years ago on, on Army Rangers. The rangers were allowed to eat once a day, and they obviously had to exercise. They were out in the field doing their military maneuvers. And so at the end of the study, the researchers running the study observed that they had, that there were, most of the rangers had lost muscle mass. And so people look at the study and say, okay, fasting like that, eating once a day causes muscle mass loss. But they are leaving out a huge picture, huge part of the picture, which is that the army rangers involved in, this, in the study were limited to 2,500 calories per day. They were not allowed to eat all they wanted. They were expending as much as 10,000 calories per day. So they were in a (laughs) negative energy balance because they were not allowed to eat as much as they wanted. If they had been, they would have taken in more food and balanced out the consumption. That wasn't a choice. Their army rangers are already starting out lean. Their bodies didn't have much to work with. Many of the rangers would break the rules to get food. They would catch little critters when they could to to eat. And so they were doing what they could to add to their calorie intake. But the main reason Mm -hmm. that they were uh, having muscle 
loss was because they weren't able to eat what they wanted. And so to take that study and interpret it as fasting plus exercise equals muscle loss is just not reading the study. Mm. If the rangers had had access to as much food as they wanted, that's where the fuel would have come from, and it, their bodies wouldn't have to wouldn't have had to break down any muscle. So autophagy, autophagy, if I understand that correctly, is we're kind of like we're helping the body to get to a state where it is killing off bad cells. Is that a good over generalization of that process? Uh, so autophagy is a word that means self-eating. And the cell is consuming parts of itself that are, are not needed in order to recycle them. I would describe it as we, we're encouraging the, the body to recycle the parts that it has made and is not presently using. And that happens mm-hmm. intra, intracellularly, that is inside the cell, rather than one cell killing another cell. And that refers back to what I said about we're very good at, at recycling protein. Autophagy is a process that recycles protein, and that's a good thing. Autophagy. So, or, or autophagy. People say it both ways. So if we have a spike in insulin, does that interrupt the autophagy process? It, it can. It's all yet to be explored. But yes, insulin is, it, it favors the synthesis of protein, and so it turns mm-hmm. to, to make protein rather than break it down, just like it mm-hmm. tends to support the formation of fat rather than the breakdown of fat and helps to switch it off. Um, let's let's talk about ketosis and breaking the fast. There are lots of popular diets out there where part of the fasting protocol is, say, to consume um, BCAs or bone broth. And what is the effect of both of those on our insulin levels? Let, let's start first with bone broth. I know that there's lots of benefits to it, but how, what effect does that have on a fast? It's not going to have much effect of insulin, much effect on insulin because there's not much in it. Basically, mm-hmm. it's, it's a beverage that you eat with a spoon. There, there would be a point at which the density of the broth may actually trigger your body into thinking that you're having a meal. And at that point, the brain's primitive tendency to want to eat all that's available may kick in and, and whip up the appetite at that point. The, that's the mm-hmm. sort of, oh, food is available flag. Here we go. But uh, to me, I kind of think, well, why, why bother? I mean, uh, well, some people may, may do it for the flavor, and if they find that e- an easier way to break into a, a fasting regimen uh, and they see results, and that's, that's the mm-hmm. study of one, if they're seeing results with something like that, that's okay, and, and carry on. But until mm-hmm. somebody has done it without, I don't really think they've given their body every advantage that they can mm-hmm. if they're having the branch chain amino acids or bone broth in the meantime. And another one that, that's popular along with the ones that you mentioned is putting coconut oil in coffee. Yes, that was my next question. And again, that's okay, but you're putting fuel in your coffee. So if you can find coffee that you like that doesn't have the coconut oil in it, I think you're better off without it. But if you can't get by without it, then and and it works for you, again, we're back to the study one, if it works for you, then power on, you found a little uh, tweak that you can do and keep on using to make things a little bit more pleasant for yourself. But I do mm. not buy that and say, oh, well, everybody can do this and be successful. Because even with the 
the complete 19-hour fast, I can't say that everyone has been successful. They haven't been. There have been a few people who've given an honest try, and for some reason or another, sometimes just never seem to click into that that place where the appetite correction occurred, and they switched to switched over to their body's fat stores as their primary fuel source. What will happen with the little tweaks like you're talking about with the mm-hmm. CAAs and the the bone broth? I'm mm-hmm. I'm reluctant to say because everybody is different, and I don't want people to kind of miss out because they put the the picture together in one way and they don't know that there's a simpler picture that they really ought to try before they give up on this. Got it. I mean, the bottom line is, again, it's what's sustainable, Mm -hmm. what allows you to strengthen your fasting muscle. Bone broth certainly has amino acids in it. We know it has glutamine in it. So we know that that glutamine can be converted into glucose. It's very low in calories. It's got a Mm -hmm. lot of healing benefits. So I think to summarize, we would both agree, it depends. And what is your goal? Exactly. And it depends. By saying it depends, it means you've got to sort this out for yourself. Does it does it work for you or does it not? And so, yeah, mm-hmm. in, in this sort of study of one tweaking, absolutely. And if, if that feels good, if, if if that is a part of the, the regimen that feels good for you, then you're building something for yourself that works. That's the kind of message that, that is important to get out to everybody is that this is your recipe that you're building. And yes, if, yes, 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 yes. If bone broth is in it, then don't let anybody tell you that that it doesn't belong as long as it's working for you. Now, if it's not working for you, that would be something to drop out and try. We just have to remember that at, at every turn, if something is working for you, it works for you. If something mm-hmm. is not working for you, as you know, I've heard you say, you go down that path, you take a pause, you look at what's working, what's not working, and if things are working, continue. If things aren't working, well, then you might have to take a slightly different route. But it's up to each of us to own our individuality, our DNA, mm-hmm. if you will, and, and, and happiness Exactly. in all of this. Happiness is a big part of this. Diet is essentially a small slice of, of health. If we ignore everything else and only focus on diet, we're really missing the boat. We talked about relationships earlier, and happiness is a big part of being healthy. And so to wrap everything around diet, around food, I think it's a big mistake. Let's, instead of calling it diet, we'll say D-I-E-T means, did I enrich today? Did mm. I bring in things to my life to make it healthy and strong? And one of those things is relationships, and challenge, uh, variety, all kinds of things go into making a life rich. And that is a part of health that I would like for people to, to remember to include as part of their daily diet. It's mm. not just food. It's all these things that go into health. And as you brought up, happiness is definitely one of them. Did I enrich today? That's great. (laughs) I absolutely love having your knowledge and and your perspective, really, because your perspective is is refreshing. Well, I I appreciate you taking the the time to talk to people from different uh, backgrounds and different experiences. My input, it's been coming from people, from seeing what works with, with people, what how people respond, what they're what they're telling me. And so thousands of user years of experience that have come in uh, as information that are, are relevant as far as what people can do, what they can't do, and, 
and this is one way to pick that up and, and share it. I think that's wonderful of you to uh, incorporate this and so that people can basically share their experiences through you mm-hmm. and me to a wider audience. So where can people learn more about um, both your books and what it is you do? It's appetitecorrection.com. And that's that's where you'll find my my blog, my website, uh, and access to the the two books, the Fast Five book and the AC, the Power of Appetite Correction book. The emphasis of, of what I work on is appetite correction because that's the key point that I would like to see everybody mm. who's overweight or obese get to because that is the, the point that switches on their healthy body instead of their obese body or their overweight body. Mm-hmm. Appetite correction being the emphasis of what I do and what I look for and set as a goal for any kind of schedule. Yeah, the the, the appetite correction book is, is more recent, but the the first book, the Fast Five book, is, is available as a free download, by the way. Uh, for people who can't afford it, they can just download it and get it that way. Wow. Uh, we do that, that is amazing. We've seen what this can do for people. And by we, I mean my wife and I have who've been working for years doing this uh, to introduce this to people. We've seen what the five words of advice that, that make up Fast Five can do for people. Hmm. And we don't want a, a couple of bucks to stand in the way of them reaching that. So mm. in short, it's eat within five consecutive wow. hours. The book goes into some more details of how it works, why it works, how to get started. But uh, if if you're looking for something but uh, can't afford to invest in a, in a book, it's there for you. I want to take a moment to just honor you for your passion, your commitment, and just what you've been helping so many people to understand and feel comfortable with and feel empowered with. It's just, it's really profound. Well, I, I appreciate that. And I, I am excited to share it with people because to see that, that beautiful human body come through is a really mm-hmm. a wonderful experience for me as well. And so it's been really delightful to be with people as they make the, the change in their life that can be so dramatic and really open up their, their freedom and sense of power, sense of control. It all, it all goes into that. I'm just happy to be a part of it. Well, I can't thank you enough for your time today and your wisdom, and it has been a pleasure to have you today. Delighted to talk to you. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Smart Life Push Journal. Write that down. SmartLifePushJournal.com. It's a system I created over five years ago, which to date has helped over a half a million people accomplish their goals, become more productive, healthier, and happier in the process. It revolves around the push goal principles. Now, if you don't know what a push goal is, no problem. The Smart Life Push Journal will actually walk you through the process of finding yours, creating it, and then accomplishing that goal and all the others on your list in less than 90 days. I've taught this system for countless years, and while it works for anyone who does it, it was difficult to help people develop the habit of just creating a push goal and then accomplishing two to three 10-minute tasks each day around their push goal. Like, that seems like common sense, and, and you know that if you just do a few things each day towards your big goals that they're going to happen, but how do we make that a habit? Well, my 90-day goal-setting system revolves around a physical journal that turns that concept into a habit. Now, if you're looking for one of those really fancy, pretty journals, 
that, you know, has your whole year plus your electricity bill plus all of your birthday cards. And it's so big and so cumbersome, you can barely carry it around. This is not your journal. I've designed this journal because I was a journal junkie. I went through hundreds of journals. I tried to create my own. I played with apps. But after looking at the neuroscience behind physically writing out these tasks, after spending so much time trying to figure out complicated day tracking journal systems and realizing I was spending more time putting on fancy borders and tapes and colors, it just dawned on me. My whole purpose is about simplicity. Like, let's make things simple. Fewer decisions, fewer distractions, a lightweight, easy to carry with you, portable journal. It's a 90-day goal-setting system where you'll set goals to accomplish in the next 90 days, and then you pluck away at them 30 days at a time. So you don't carry around with you a journal that holds a year's worth of information or even 90 days. You carry around 30 days at a time. And that's important because in my study and in working with hundreds of thousands of people just like you, I found that things come up that change your goals, that change your direction. Life throws you curveballs and you need that fluidity. At the same time, you need accountability. It's like walking around with a life coach in your bag, in your purse, in your hand. You'll always have it with you. That was key. Because if you don't have it with you, then your goals, your dreams, and the tasks that you need to accomplish in order to master your goals are out of sight, out of mind. It's simple. It's fast. It does two things. It helps you track your health and fitness, which also includes your diet and nutrition, your sleep, all things that make you better, healthier, and it helps you track your day, your life. So you intertwine both business and personal. This is for the stay-at-home mom. This is for the entrepreneur, the network marketer. This is for the college student. This is for the person whose dreams are so big, they don't have time to turn their day planner into another cumbersome, huge, overwhelming project. It's simple. And it also includes a complete video series that teaches you how to use a journal. Because if you're like me, I don't like to read instructions. But how you use this journal is what makes it so amazing. I hope you'll check it out and learn more by going to smartlifepushjournal.com.